Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Today we will have some time to look at the different teachings that are in our churches today. And one of the things you will be noting is how closely they resemble biblical Christianity. That they resemble Christianity so well that if you are not careful, if you don't have that skill of discernment, you might actually think they are biblical, but in actual sense they are not. Today you will meet men who read the Bible more than you do. Today you will meet men who pray and the ground shakes, yet you have never prayed that way. Today you will meet men who sing and you think angels have come down and you will say, wow, I wish I could be one of them. And yet sadly, most of these men will be false teachers. Most of these men will be quoting the scriptures and interpreting them to mean what they have decided is true. Not necessarily the will of God. Most of these men are very successful. And when you look at them, they look like an example of what a successful life on earth looks like. Yet most of these men get their money at the expense of poor believers. Get their money at the pain of those who have believed and trusted them. These men claim to have gone to heaven, but they are actually on their highway to eternal damnation. These men, when they open the scriptures, they seem to know them well. You might be tempted to think they are the ones who wrote the Bible. And yet, they have no idea what these scriptures mean. Some of these men are your friends. Some of these men are your favorite preachers and teachers. And most likely, you will be disappointed when you hear me mention some of those names. My apologies ahead of time. Some of these men are your mentors. You cannot imagine the Christian life without them. And yet, if you follow them all the way, you won't end up on heaven's door. You will end up on hell's gates. Some of these men know Christian language very well. But it is language that is empty of God's truth. Some of these men are our relatives and loved ones. And you see, that's the challenge with false teaching. Often when we think about false teachers, we tend to think that they are out there. They are in America, they are in the UK, but surely they cannot be in our church. And yet when you look at the Bible, several warnings of who the false teachers are, you find those very characteristics in your friends, in your family members, And guess what? Sometimes those characteristics are in you. You come thinking, "Uh today we are going to see false teachers exposed. And when they describe them, you realize you have been one of them. So I hope that if today the scriptures should expose you as one of those false teachers, that you will have the humility to repent That you will have the willingness to break down and say, Jesus, I am sorry, please give me another chance. You remember the hymn we just sang? 
that by nature we are men who are prone to wander. But our cry is that Lord, the Lord will bring us from our wanderings by his grace. When his grace exposes you, I hope you will have the courage to repent. That you will have the courage to submit to God's grace. That he will bring you from your wanderings back into his fold. Because he is the only good shepherd you will ever know. As you may already be aware, today we will be dealing with a group that is commonly known as the World Faith Movement. When we talk about Pentecostalism, we are not necessarily saying that everyone who is a Pentecostal is wrong, but what we will discover is that there are a number of versions of Pentecostalism in circulation that you may not even be aware of, by the way. That there are a number of shades of Pentecostalism that closely look like the real thing, but actually are not. That you will notice that not every Pentecostal church is necessarily a force. But you will also notice that not every Pentecostal church is necessarily true to God's teaching and word. In other words, we are not saying that if you meet a Pentecostal or you go to a Pentecostal church, you should go saying, ha, they told us these guys are cults, they are false teachers. We need to be very, very careful. That's not what we are saying. Not every Pentecostal church is counted just as the same way we can say not every Presbyterian church is necessarily true. You could be in a good church and believe in lies. Or you could be a good Christian attending a false church. So you cannot generalize and say everyone inside this church is wrong, we need to run away. Neither can you come to a good church and say, because this church teaches the Bible, it means everybody there is a good Christian. That's not how it works. Again, remember, Satan disguises, right? So you could have good people in a bad church, and you could have bad people in a very wonderful Bible-believing church. And that is why as we deal with this, we need to be very careful, we need to be very discerning so that we are able to tell the differences and where we find that we are in error or wrong as individuals or corporately as a church, I hope that you will be challenged to reconsider what you believe and you will be willing to repent. For us to appreciate the topic today and what we are going to be working through, it is very important that we get at least a brief history of where Pentecostalism is coming from, both globally but also within our own East Africa region or Uganda as a country. My goal here is not to give you all the details of the beginnings and development of Pentecostalism, but to help you see some shades and branches of Pentecostalism and the things that should concern us as believers today, most importantly. When we think about Pentecostalism, especially here in Uganda, we don't seem to see differences between different churches. But do you know that you could be having 10 Pentecostal churches within this region and all of those 10 churches don't believe the same things at all? Did you know that you could have churches here? They all say they are Pentecostal, but when you meet them, each church will be different, each church will be emphasizing different things, 
each church is going to be believing different things, and yet they claim they are Pentecostal. In Presbyterianism, for instance, when you say you are a Presbyterian, immediately there are certain things we assume that you believe. One of them, for instance, would be what we call the five alones of the Protestant Reformation. That you believe in scripture alone, in Christ alone, in faith alone, in grace alone, and to the glory of God alone. When you hear those five things, immediately you know this guy is reformed, this guy comes from maybe a Presbyterian background. But it doesn't work that way in Pentecostal churches. You could have five Pentecostal guys here and everyone believes their own things and they all claim to be under the same umbrella of what? Of Pentecostalism. Two of them might be believing the Bible, another one might not be believing it, another one might be believing in the revelations of his pastor, but they all say we are Pentecostals. Now in Uganda, for us, when we meet someone from Assemblies of God, another one from Calvary Chapel, another one from Miracle Center, another one from Word of Faith something, we say all of these are Pentecostals. Yet if you put them in the same room, they themselves don't agree with each other on what true Pentecostalism actually believes. So it is important for us to point that out at this stage and try to see, when we say we are talking about Pentecostalism, what are we really talking about? Now, there is something that we call classic Pentecostalism, or what you would call the original Pentecostalism. This one is believed to have begun around 1901 to around 1906 in the U.S., this was a movement that was emphasizing the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This was the teaching that believed that after you have become a Christian, you receive another baptism, which is not of water, but one which is of the Holy Spirit, and which is evidenced by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That as a believer, you must be able to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you must exercise them, such that everybody can see that God's power is really at work in you. And one way in which you show that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit was to speak in tongues. Now, of course, when you go in Pentecostalism, the word tongues can also mean so many things. For some people, the word tongues might mean speaking a different language, like French, like uh, Lingara, like uh, Kiswahili that you have never known before. But a lot of what we were hearing around this time were not really human languages. And if you have visited some Pentecostal churches even today, you can tell the kind of tongues they speak today. Hallelujah. Say, so brother, what have you said? I don't know, but you see, brother, you don't understand things of the spirit. Hmm? God understands what I have said. And in fact, my prayer is more effective when I speak what I don't know than when I use the language I understand. You hear the argument? But for them, being able to speak things you don't know, or in this case, what they call the tongues, was one of the single most marks of being filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of this classic Pentecostalism was still biblical, there was a lot of good preaching and teaching. The only excesses that they were especially evident 
was the emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, of speaking in tongues, and of the use of the gifts of the Spirit. And in this we are thinking about performing miracles, the ability to prophesy, praying for the sick people and receiving healing, speaking and being able to interpret tongues. And when you did this, then you were really a good Pentecostal. You were filled with the Holy Spirit and you were certainly special from those who are coming from traditional churches like Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist. Those guys were ancient. These ones who were filled with the Spirit were the real thing. But then along the way, in the 1950s, comes a second wave of Pentecostalism. One that has largely come to be known as charismatic Christianity. Now, the word charisma, of course, comes from gifts. So this is still an emphasis of gifts of the Holy Spirit. But what is happening now is not that these gifts are being exercised amongst Pentecostals. But they are being borrowed and transported into mainstream churches and denominations. So the charismatic movement is about importing a Pentecostal experience into traditional churches. So now what you have is Anglicans and Roman Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians beginning to say, hey, 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 it seems these Pentecostal brothers have something we are missing out on. So what do we do? We need to speak in tongues also. We need to start praying for healings. We need to start performing miracles in overnights. We need to start identifying the names of the different demons and chasing them as well. So now the move and the experience of the Holy Spirit is moving from the Pentecostal circles and coming into traditional churches that originally did not believe in this kind of thing. And if you look around today, you will notice that this charismatic experience has not gone away. In fact, today we might be having more charismatics in traditional churches than the real Pentecostal churches. Today we have Anglicans that chase more demons than in the assemblies of God. Today we have Catholics who are receiving visions and dreams and prophecies and some of them have become specialized healers, but within the Roman Catholic Church. Today we have Baptists who speak in tongues and claim to interpret them. So it is no longer what denomination you belong to, if you really want to be the kind of Christian that is vibrant, you need to add the experience of the Holy Spirit and the overemphasis on the different charismatic gifts. So, wave number one was the birth of Pentecostalism as a movement emphasizing baptism of the Holy Spirit and the demonstration of his power by the use of gifts. Wave number two is this experience flowing into traditional churches and now Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Baptists, Presbyterians are also speaking in tongues, are chasing demons, are trying to heal and to perform miracles and wonders, and there is a, a total chaos, I should say. But around the 1960s and 70s, another movement, or what you would call a third wave, comes up. Now, this third wave is not very popular, yet it is going to be the concern of our discussion today. It is what we call neo-Pentecostalism. The word neo means new. So when we say neo-Pentecostalism, 
We are talking about a new version of Pentecostalism. It is still established on the foundations of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, of the usage of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, miracles, speaking in tongues, healing the sick, and so on and so forth. But it has added in another angle, and that's what we call an emphasis of word faith. And some of these groups under Neo-Pentecostalism have come to be known as word of faith movement. But as we discuss later, you will notice that their understanding of faith is very different from what we mean when we say have faith in Jesus or believe or exercise faith. There is a different definition of the word faith that they have. And we will be looking at that as we go along. But you must have faith and you must confess by faith what you want to see happen. And whatever you confess will become yours in Christ Jesus. And it is this movement that has slowly now become popular and come to redefine Pentecostalism. That today when we think about Pentecostalism, we don't think about the first wave or the second wave. Usually we think about this generation of preachers and teachers who are emphasizing the power of faith and the power of confession from your mouth. This particular movement begins uh, way back by a man who was known as E.W. Kenyon, a man who not only introduced some of the doctrines that these church movements will later demonstrate, but who really became like the grandfather of the word faith movement. Most of the things they will believe today began with him. But after E.W. Kenyon came another man who is also very popular. He's called Kenneth Hagin. Kenneth Hagin has come to be known as the father of the word faith movement. He took the ideas of the founding preacher, Kenyon, and added onto them, popularized them through the use of radio and television, and the word faith movement became popular, started spreading all the way from the United States of America into other countries and continents, and especially the continent of Africa. And from there, we have an overemphasis not only on faith and positive confession, but we have an overemphasis on prosperity, on material abundance, on the believer's right to success, on spiritual warfare. Since we need to succeed, we must remove every obstacle that hinders our success. And one of those obstacles is demons. So we need to be able to chase the demons if we are to realize our success. This success comes through anointed men and women of God who either are apostles or prophets. And these men and women are usually having special gifts that no one else has. Maybe they have the ability to perform miracles or they receive some special revelations from God that no one else is receiving. All these people are able to command things and they happen. They exercise a special type of power that no one else has. And this kind of emphasis on the man of God and his ability to perform miracles and wonders and the quest for material gain and success have come to characterize what today we call the word faith movement. 
Now, some of you know this movement as a prosperity gospel movement because of how they use the word prosperity most of the time. Some other people have called it word of faith. But no matter what you call it, no matter where you start from, the main emphasis is always going to come back to, as a Christian, it is your right to be healthy, it is your right to be wealthy, and you have the authority to make these things happen as you confess them with your mouth and believe them with your heart. So if you are a believer and you use the power of faith and you confess whatever you want with your mouth, it is your right to get those things. And what are those things? The right to be healthy and never be sick. The right to be wealthy and never be poor. So the goal of the Christian life becomes prosperity. And poverty becomes an obstacle. The goal of the Christian life becomes good health. Therefore, sickness and disease become enemies of the Christian faith. Which is why deliverance is exercised and overemphasized. Because deliverance is the way you remove obstacles to your success, to your prosperity, and your wealth. Some of the key leading figures or teachers of this movement include Kenneth Hagin, as I have already said. Some of you might be familiar with also Kenneth Copeland. We had Oral Roberts. We have Andrew Womack. Joel Austin. Here on our own Africa continent, particularly from Nigeria, we have people like Benson Idahosa, Matthew Ashimoro, Chris Oyaklaome, T.B. Joshua, David Oyedepo. In Southern Africa, we have Shepard Bushiri. In Uganda here, we have people like Robert Kayanja, Samuel Kakande, the prophet, and the list goes on and goes on. Now, I may have forgotten your prophet. But don't worry, maybe along the way I will mention his name as well. I want to believe that many of us have a prophet somewhere. A pastor somewhere in whom we believe as long as he has not spoken, God will not visit us today. But when the man of God stands up, now we can safely sing and say, it is well with our souls. Each one of you has an idol prophet or pastor somewhere. And uh, I hope that the Lord will show him to you today so that you can do something about him. It is also important that we ask ourselves, why is a movement like this or a teaching like this of great concern to us? Why should church leaders like you and me be concerned that there are people preaching a different gospel that manifests itself in the pursuit of material wealth and health? What is it that makes this group special? Why has it grown and become popular more than our own traditional churches that have been here for a long time? And looking at some of the reasons to why will be very important for us in our study. So let me point out quickly a few of these reasons why the prosperity gospel message has become appealing and why the church should be concerned and therefore prepare to respond to this message that is really no biblical message. Number one, we notice that the prosperity gospel message takes advantage of our current context, especially here in Africa. Africa, we are a very poor continent in so many ways. And we all long for riches and well-being. 
I should quickly remind you that much as all of us may be concerned that there are people preaching prosperity, none of us would like to be poor. Is there anyone here who would say, me, I prefer to be in poverty than prosperity? I'm sure everyone of us wants to prosper in one way or another, right? And this word faith teachers know our desire and our desperation. So if your need is prosperity or deliverance from poverty, what is a message about prosperity? How appealing do you think that message is going to sound? Somebody who comes and says, God has revealed to me seven ways in which you can access your prosperity. Even the pastor on the pulpit who was preaching about suffering would like to sit down so that the man of God can explain the seven ways to prosperity. It is understandable that everybody would pay attention because somebody is pointing at, at a problem that we've been trying to solve and we didn't know how. And now somebody is saying, all you need to know is to do these special three things and your life will never be the same again. Who would not want to try it? If you had a sickness and the doctors had told you that your sickness has gone beyond the cure, so you just need to put your house in order and wait for the day you are going to die. If a man of God came here and said, I serve a God who can heal you and he has told me if you do the following five things you will be healed. How many would refuse to try those five things? Of course you would. That's when you say, Jesus, I know you understand. So uh, let me first work on these five things. If they fail, I will come back. You give Jesus a break. And first try what the prophet is saying. So we are in a desperate situation. And most of these word faith teachers take advantage of our desperation. If you do not have school fees for your daughter, and all you need is a hundred thousand, and somebody says, if you saw that money, within seven days, it will have multiplied seven more times. So you will send your daughter to school and you will also buy three more cows and add on your flock. How many of you would refuse to sow the 100,000? Even when you think he might be lying to you, but somehow you keep thinking, what if? What if he's right? Am I about to miss an opportunity of a lifetime? You look at their 100,000, you look at your daughter who is at home and others have gone to school and say, wait a minute, what if? And before you know it, you have sold the money. And the man of God has gone to Mount Elegon Hotel for lunch. And where have you gone for lunch? The man is enjoying your money at Mount Elegon Hotel. And you are here eating saliva. And you are hoping seven days from now things will get better. <laughs> Desperation is foundational to this deception. But we also notice that this prosperity gospel promises the easy way out. Christianity tells us that life is hard. Prosperity gospel preachers tell us that life is easy if you know some secrets. Do the following, do the following, and you will receive a promotion even though you have never qualified for that job. How many of you would be comfortable going to the hospital and you find a doctor there and he says, Oh, by the way, I used to be a mechanic, but the man of God prayed for me and I became a doctor. How many of you would love that man to treat you? 
Would you comfortably allow him to inject you? But that's what we are saying every time we ask for shortcuts. You want to be rich even though you have not worked. You want to be promoted even though you are not qualified. Now promoted to what? <laughs> One time I had a man of God, he gives a prophecy, and he looks at a certain girl and said, the Lord is telling me that he is promoting you. Come forward, come forward for prayer. So this girl comes forward. And the man of God prays and speaks in tongues and says, the Lord has promoted you. And then he asks the girl, by the way, what do you do? And the girl said, I'm a housemaid. Now, there was some quietness for a moment. And I think for once everybody was saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. This girl is a housemaid. And you are saying God has promoted her. So he has promoted her to what? To your housewife. <laughs> yeah, because if you are the only worker and you are a housemaid in the home, God has promoted you. What do you become? So you take over, you become the housewife. So what happens to the wife? She's promoted to what? So you can see what we are talking about. They provide easy shortcuts. Of course, if you think through them, they don't make much sense. But again, this is a movement where you are not supposed to think. As we will look at it later, we will notice that one of their special emphasis is that you are supposed to believe by faith. Don't think, don't reason, just believe by faith. Most of these preachers, as they preach, you will hear them saying, I feel the Holy Spirit is saying this. I feel God is saying this. It's more about what you feel, not about what you are thinking or reasoning. And that is why a girl like this is told that she has been promoted and she claps, yet she's a housemaid. That's why somebody will tell you that you have become a pastor even though you never went for any pastoral training and you clap hands and say praise the Lord. Being a pastor is not by magic. You don't just wake up and become a pastor. But that's what we want to hear, the shortcut. The sweatless Christianity. Effortless Christianity. You wake up and there is a sack of money under your bed. That's when you know that God is now working. And when you pray and God delays, then you go to another church where the action is happening. This prosperity gospel is a result oriented. While Christianity tells us to trust the Lord and hope in what God will do, prosperity gospel preachers are saying, you can have your heaven here and now. Christianity says, carry your cross and follow Christ. And on his return, you shall be rewarded. The prosperity gospel says, you don't have to wait for tomorrow's rewards. You can get your rewards here and now. Just close your eyes, touch your pocket. Whatever it is that your hand has touched, bring it out. Now throw it in the basket and it will be well with your soul. Yeah, it's a gospel of close your eyes and everything will work itself out. The prosperity gospel message, another point, speaks a language that we understand. The prosperity gospel says, sow a seed and you shall reap. It says, give and you shall receive. 
And those are principles that we understand. That's how the natural order of the world works. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You give me and I give you. You don't give me and I don't give you. So because that is easily understood by any human being, it works much easier in our understanding, for instance, than the gospel of God's grace. Christianity says you don't deserve anything. Prosperity gospel says it's your right to have everything. Christianity says you have been saved by grace, not what you deserve. Prosperity gospel says no, 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 no. It's not about grace. It's about what you do. Do you want to get rich? You give. Put in the basket. Do you want uh, one million? You put in a hundred thousand and God will multiply it ten times. You participate. And that is how the natural world works. You receive what you put in. And the prosperity preachers are saying, put in your money and you will get more. So you can see why people will easily warm up to this kind of teaching and easily understand it. Prosperity gospel infiltrates traditional churches and fellowships where Bible teaching and Bible doctrine are very weak. This kind of teaching will come in churches where serious discipleship is not prioritized. There is a lot of excitement and emotional feelings, but very few people that are studying and thinking through God's word. Christian, this kind of teaching comes to people who are bored with routine, who are tired of lifeless traditional rituals in their churches. And the man who says, actually, I can bring the Holy Spirit to work in your life here and now is going to be very appealing more than the routine they have been going through Sunday after Sunday in their own church. This kind of teaching comes to churches where leadership does not warn its members about the dangers of spiritual deception. And because people don't know the truth, they cannot see the difference between truth and what is not truth. So whatever looks like the truth, they will warm up into it, they will love it. After all, it sounds Christian. It must be. If I said, I see you receiving a car in the next seven days in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, because I said in the name of Jesus, the statement has become Christian. So that means it's okay. It has no problem. After all, it was in the name of who? Jesus. Is Jesus Christian? Yes. So is the statement Christian? Sure. A lot of language that is smeared with Christian vocabulary and terminology. And the moment we hear something that sounds Christian, we say, ah, we, we think this one is okay. There is no problem with this. When God's people are not grounded in God's truth, they will easily be deceived by things that seemingly look godly, but actually are not. And now you see why Paul said, I am afraid Corinthian brothers, you are about to be led astray. You are about to be deceived. Why? There are things that almost look like but are not. And because they almost look like you are embracing them, you are celebrating them, you are rejoicing in them, yet they are different from what scripture teaches. Oh, how I pray that as God's people, that our eyes would be opened to the truth of the gospel. That we would not rush into things that seem like, sound like, but actually are not. 
But ours would be a pursuit and a study of truth. That as Jesus said, we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. But did you know that Jesus, when he was talking about false prophets in Matthew chapter 7, he said that you shall know them by their fruit. Do you realize Jesus doesn't say you shall know them by their miracles? Jesus doesn't say you shall know them when they speak in tongues. He doesn't say you shall know them by how they chase demons. No. It's not about their gifts. It's not about their power or their abilities. It's about the fruit of their Christian lifestyle. In the book of Jude, in Jude verses 3, Jude is writing to the believers and he tells them that while I was writing to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to urge you to earnestly fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then in verse 4 he says that for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among us. The key word there being secretly slipped in. Why are they secretly sleeping in? Because they don't want to be known. They look like Christians outwardly. They use Christian language. They sing Christian songs and hymns like you and me. But their agenda, their intention, their motive is not clean. And because of that, Jude says that their condemnation was written about long ago. They come in secretly, and if you are not able to tell the difference, you can very easily be deceived. And that is Paul's concern to the Corinthian believers. I am afraid for you. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, listen to what Peter says. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly, again our word, introduce destructive teachings, even denying the master who bought them, and bringing quick destruction upon themselves. Now listen to this, verse 3, verse 2 and 3. Many will follow in their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their what? In their greed. Much as they look Christian, much as they pretend to be innocent, much as they look like they care about you, the motivation behind their ministry to you is greed. They want to gain material gain, financial gain, popularity, publicity. In their greed, they will exploit you. They will deceive you with false words. Some other Bible versions say that they will deceive you with stories that they have made up. Today we live in a generation of visions and dreams and prophecies. The man of God comes to you and says, the Lord spoke to me last night about you. And usually when we hear a God who spoke last night, we close the Bibles because the Bibles are ancient and are for long ago. We want to hear fresh revelation from last night. But what is that revelation? Stories that they have made up. Peter says they will exploit you 
with stories that they themselves have made up. They are not even coming from the Lord, by the way. Secretly, gently, unaware, they introduce false teaching that leads to destruction. Now you can see why Paul tells the Corinthian brothers, say, I am afraid. False teaching is already among you, but it is not obvious. So you might not easily tell the difference between true biblical teaching and true and, and false teaching. This false teaching might come sounding biblical, a scripture that has been misinterpreted. This false teaching might come in the form of a prophecy telling you something that is not found in the Bible, something that you desperately want to hear. Maybe the man of God is telling you the kind of woman you will marry. Maybe the man of God is telling you how you are going to receive your promotion within seven days. Maybe the man of God is lying to you that all your cows are going to start giving birth to twins, twins, twins every time. And that is what you want to hear. Maybe this false teaching will come in the form of, of promises of healing and, and material prosperity. And when you look at how poor you are and you imagine how prophecy would change you within one week and you become a millionaire who is now doing business in Dubai and you say, wow, the man of God has spoken. You stand up and you give him a powerful handicraft. And Paul is saying, I am afraid. When another gospel is preached, you easily put up with it. You easily thank and, and celebrate men who preach a different Jesus. You are not even aware that the Jesus or the gospel they bring is the wrong one. And Paul says, I am scared. Because you people are about to be led astray. Just like what happened to Eve, the same thing is about to happen to you. And he says men like this, who bring a different gospel, who bring a different spirit, who teach a different Jesus, he says in verses 13 to 15, that such men are false apostles. They are deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And today we will have an opportunity to look at some of them who disguise as apostles of Christ. Who claim to be men of God. The only ones that God is speaking through. Who claim to have some special rare anointing that no other pastor can ever have. Who claim to be going to heaven on weekends and having breakfasts with Jesus. And therefore they are the only ones who know what is good for you. Paul says such men are deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. He compares them with Satan. He says even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not a surprise if his servants do the same. The key word there is that they disguise. They try to look outwardly like apostles of Christ, but inwardly they are not. They never were. They never will be. But when you first look at them, you think you have finally found God's voice for our generation. But when you search the scriptures, you realize that the things they teach almost look Christian 
but they are not. The Jesus they preach almost looks like the Jesus of the Bible, but he's not. The promises they give you almost look like the promises of the Bible, but they are not. And Paul says, unless you open your eyes and see the difference between what scripture teaches and what it doesn't, just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, I am afraid you too are about to be led astray. Today we are going to spend some time opening up the scriptures, looking at what the Bible really, really teaches, because scripture says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And of course the reverse is also true. If you know the lie, the lie will keep you in bondage. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.